0: Hello, I'm Junius Williams, your host on Everything's Political. And today I'm joined by Francesca Dulce Larson. I never said her middle name before. <laughs> and we're going to do something a little different. Usually I introduce a third party who's going to be our guest or guest as the case may be. But this is going to be a session kind of like a self-evaluation. What does this all mean to us and perhaps to you, our faithful listening audience? You see, we started out with this topic, everything's political, because we wanted to just discuss some things that were perhaps hidden from view or not so much talked about. And that was our first season. We've been on this ride now for, this is the end of our third season. And so we had some very interesting discussions. But then the second season, we quickly went into how to be a better organizer. Because, you see, our main interest is social justice, and we want to show people how to do it based on what people have been doing and perhaps what can be done. And then our third season, now, we ask, where's the money? And that ought to give you a little hint that we think money is important if it's used in a way to help people lead a better life. So at this point, some evaluation, this is what we're going to do. We're going to look at some of the questions people have asked us. We're going to look at some of the questions we've asked ourselves. Because you see, every time we do this, I learn a lot, and I'm sure Francesca can speak for herself, but I learn an awful lot from the people that we have here. And so we may come to a position that we didn't have when we started each episode, which makes it even better, or as we say sometimes, more better. So Francesca, let's answer some questions. Yeah. What do you have in store?
1: So apparently folks actually were enjoying some of the conversations we were having. And we weren't just speaking to one another, but I would always have this conversation with you any day, just the two of us, probably at your dinner table, so that I could hear all the stories and ask about all the art. But we actually have some questions in from folks who have either written into us through email. We have some folks who texted us individually. We have some folks who hit us up on Instagram, And I thought I'd bring those here today. And also, I kind of want to sneak in one question first. And it's just a personal question that I have, because I realize I've never asked you this. Why did you decide to do a podcast? You were in the classroom. You're the Nork historian. Why podcast? Why talk about these issues? Why not just have folks over to your front porch? Why not host an event? Why this space? Why these issues?
0: Because podcasting gets me a wider audience for the kinds of issues that I wanted to deal with. When I was at Rutgers and I retired from uh, being the director of the Abbott Leadership Institute and the Youth Media Symposium in 2018, I had a great group of people around me, people who came every other Saturday to our free classes, people who Enjoyed it. People who participated, we ate. We had fun. We talked about each other. It was in the culture, but it was also very educational. And I said, I want to take that whole concept and go national with that, or even international as the case may be, because people need to learn. And that's where I am right now. I've been an advocate. I've been an organizer. I've been a lawyer. And I say this modestly. I think I have something to offer and I want people to know. So podcasting seemed to be the best way to do that.
1: Yeah. This reminds me of the conversations we were having about how to become an organizer. And one of the threads that kept coming up last season when we were talking about becoming an organizer and organizing was that you have to meet folks where they are and you got to find your people. And it sounds like you found the way to do that. In 2020, you found the way to do that. And now this still is the right space to do it. And I'm sure that's a question that we have actually gotten it in, is how do you keep your movement going? And it's that you keep finding the way to reach your your people.
0: An organizer is a fish in a sea full of people. So you got to dive in, (laughs) get them where they are. You can have all these grand ideas, but if people don't want to hear you, then, hey, you just, I don't want to use that word.
1: (laughs) All right, let's dive into some questions. And I've got a couple to get us rolling. And this is a a feeling that kept coming up in in a few of the questions. So I kind of mashed this one together. And it's about what folks can do right now and if change can actually happen. And so we had some young folks write into us, and I don't know what young is anymore because they didn't put exactly their ages, but they said that they're students. And they asked, hey, you've had a lot of adults on the past couple of seasons. You're talking about big organizations. Is there anything that students can do right now to change our lives? What could students be doing? Or is there no impact? Do you have to wait until you're 18?
0: One of my favorite podcasts in the first season, in 19, I'm sorry, in 20, I guess it was 2020 or 2021. It was 2021. Yes, 2021 was uh, a conversation I had with four high school students, grades 9 through 11 from Denver, Colorado. They had gone on a trip from Colorado, from Denver to Washington, D.C., to go to the African-American Museum. And I heard about them because there was a little squib about it on CBS TV. I happened to be looking at it. And so I said, I got the school name. I I had the student's name. So I quickly got on the telephone. Remember what a telephone is, y'all? I got got on the telephone. I called information. I got the school, I got the principal, and I started talking. I said, I want them on my show. Why? Because they embody what we were all about back in the 1960s. They said they had changed their lives because of that. And they went on to, what is the word I want? They advocated for and were successful and getting the whole school curriculum changed to look at Black history in a different way. And I said, right on. If there was ever anything that was uh, significant about the 60s, my coming up period, was a revolution that we had about how we look at ourselves as Black people. One of the most pernicious impacts of America's original sin, racism, was they took away our self-definition and imposed their own definition on who we were. And here were some young people who used a different method, a method which was definitely apropos of the 2000s as opposed to the 1960s to come to the position where they now said this information, this knowledge, this museum, this old experience changed my life so that I want to do something about it. And not only do I want to do something about it, They did something about it. Brought me to tears just listening to them talk about who they had become. Revolution, that's what that was. It was a revolution in consciousness. And so uh, your folks are wrong. We did have young people. Can we hear that? A little bit about that
1: episode? Yeah, let's jump in.
0: What did you see at the museum that most inspired you?
2: I feel like the whole museum experience in itself was really just the most significant part. Just the whole idea of the museum is essentially that you start out in dark times. You go down this cramped up elevator and I think it's meant to uh, symbolize a slave ship. And as you're climbing up, you know, the top level is the civil rights movement. So you're able to see how as a people we progress and have been fighting and have been overcoming struggles, obstacles, and really anything that's been put in our way. And I feel like it really... Pulls out the resilience within our culture and within our people. And I feel like that's really liberating. And I think that's the feeling that we were all able to speak on and wanted to bring back to DMLK when we returned from the trip.
0: Johnny, what did you learn about yourself that you didn't know before?
3: When I went to the museum, I know before I went, I had a lot of self confidence issues and like not really believing myself and not really liking the color of my skin. But the more I went through these I was just able to like, I saw like so many different role models and how we actually really came up because it's not what we were taught here at our school. It was completely different. And just seeing how we have moved up and how the light kept shining on us, like Clea said, it gets lighter every level. It was just like really cool. And it just helped me like gather a lot of confidence about myself and just made me love myself more. It was really hard to process it. It was really heavy to process it. I think it took me a few months to process everything that I had seen in that museum and process how I felt about it and what I wanted to do about it. At the time, I just remember feeling very motivated after I got done. I wanted to change it because I wanted other kids to be able to have the liberation that we had when we went to the museum and to be able to have the experience that we had. Learning your history is a powerful thing. It's a sad thing. It's a happy thing. It's exciting. It's depressing. It's all of that. But you need to know it in order to know yourself, which is why it's so amazing. Wow. I guess it's a life changing event.
0: What can young people do? They can learn their history, they can get motivated, they can find out who they are. I'm adamant about that. That's the process right there. And that's the most important process. That's the revolutionary moment. So from those moments of self-discovery, when they got back, they were on fire and they had to do something. And that's what young people can do. That's what young people do do. And here's what they did.
2: Then COVID hit and we um, were virtual And we decided to, after George Floyd had passed away, we decided to start our podcast, No Justice, No Peace to Take. After we
3: started our podcast, we also started working on our resolution to get more Black history into schools. And in October of 2020, that was passed unanimously. So
0: Passed by the Board of Education of Denver, Colorado? Yes. Wow. Just like that. How exciting.
3: So the work we were doing was very limited to us and some of those students in the BSA who were in the beginning involved with the podcast. But we definitely had a lot of support from our community, community leaders, other student activists in our community. But we weren't really focused on generating like popularity or publicity. We are more focused on just getting our, our message out there and getting it done.
0: So as you can see, There are young people who are doing some fantastic things. I mean, they're being creative. They're being stimulated. But first of all, they have to arrive at a certain consciousness to make them want to do more. And that's what these young ladies did. Uh, If you want to hear this entire episode, go to everythingspolitical.us, and this was season one. And you can find the title. It was uh, Don't Erase Our History, How Black Youth Changed Their High School Curriculum in Denver, Colorado.
1: All right. Next question. You ready for another one? Yep. All right. This one feels very much related to our last question And this one's shouting you out as the Nork historian. When did you become the Nork historian, by the way?
0: I don't remember. It's been about uh, three, four years since uh, the mayor appointed me.
1: And what do you do as a Nork historian?
0: I do this. I talk to people. (laughs) (laughs) I remind people of the importance of history. But more important, I use history as a basis for my projects to engage people. Just like this podcast, the podcast is really foundationed in history because we're talking about what people did. Some of it a little further back than others. We talked to the uh, some of my friends in SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, this season about how they raised money to support their organization. But we also talked about my adventures in Selma, Selma, Alabama, as part of SNCC when I went down there in nineteen. Sixty-five to be a part of the march from Selma to Montgomery, but I found out that SNCC had a separate operation in Montgomery, and so that's where I stayed. You asked me some very good questions about that episode. That one was talking about the vote. It was called The Power of the Vote, and we went up with that one on April thirteenth, two 2022, in episodes seven and eight. So we might want to visit some of that because you already asked the questions. Why did I go down there? No, because you already asked the question. Why did I go back for the commemoration 57 years later?
1: I guess you even needed a reminder of your own history.
0: Uh, Yes, I do sometimes.
1: Shall we jump in and take a listen?
0: Okay. I have a personal connection to that March, the march from Selma to Montgomery. I was uh, in Montgomery with SNCC. I was not actually on the march until the last day, because most of the time I was in jail or in Kilby State Prison. Now, what happened to me? Why didn't I make the whole thing? Well, I was on my way to Selma, but we stopped in Montgomery to check on the safety factor on the road, Route 80. Went upstairs at the SNCC office at the corner of Jackson and High Streets, second floor, I call it the upper room, met a man named Stokely Carmichael, and he said, what are you going to Selma for? We need you here, his Trinidadian accent very pronounced. So we went downstairs, put our sleeping bags at homes they had assigned us. And the rest is history. So this was a very important moment for me just to relive.
1: Okay. So thinking about you going back down to Selma and getting to experience the storytelling, to experience the power of the music, of the messaging, to also amplify that memory of your own history. It makes me wonder, let's say we can't go back to the moment in time, or we don't have pictures or video or a large event to remind us of our history. What are other ways, Junius, that you would suggest we go about learning about our history?
0: We produced a website called RiseUpNewark.com. You were the You were a part of that team. That was back in 2017, I think, and it was a history of Newark and all the ethnic groups who came to Newark, like the 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 Irish, the Italian, the Jews, and found black people already here at the bottom of the economic and political heat, and it's a story about how those ethnic groups, the white ethnic groups, passed us in terms of power, but what we did to eventually get power, I'm talking about the formal range of power, how we went about getting that ultimately in the election of the first Black mayor in 1970 and how we did it was much more difficult than the way they did it and we had to use the street politics that we learned in the 1960s to make that happen. So that I offer that as a way for people to understand what happens in big cities in this country called America. After the first year and a half it had over a million hits so I don't even know what it has now but we continue to uh thrive with that, we continue to grow with it. Most recently, I added a chapter on women, the whole question of women politics, how women got power in the city of New That's chapter five. So we've had we have five chapters up there now that people can take a look at. So that's one way to do that. Then we have Rise Up Detroit or RiseUpDetroit.org, which has a, a, a similar but not the complete history of Black Power in Detroit. So, those are two ways to do that. It's always, if once you learn something about the historical period and see where you are in it, then it's very easy to keep up with today's events and just use history as a fulcrum for determining what's going to happen next. And that's the value of history. You learn something about what happened then, you know where you are now, and you can project. And you can do that by reading the paper.
1: Great answer. I guess I'm going to have to get another newspaper subscription. Junius, what newspapers do you subscribe to? Oh,
0: well, I have the, uh, the New York Times, I have the Washington Post on my computer. I listen to a, a group of essays and uh, read a group of essays and commentary under the umbrella called Portside. I listen every day, for well, five days a week to uh, Amy Goodwin's program on uh, WBAI here in, now, not Newark, in New York called Democracy Now, not New in New York called Democracy Now. I look at, uh, there's a sports app that I have. There's a, a lot of other apps that uh, come up. I can't even think of the advice. I have, uh, let's see, there's a, it's a number of them. I look at them. All the time, I'm going through my computer, looking and listening and watching and and learning. And as I said, that's the way history helps me because like, history is the the skeleton and the rest of this is putting meat on the bones.
1: Oh, it's almost lunchtime. I'm hungry, genius.
0: Oh, well, you know, you can go get a chunk of history.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You know what? My favorite way to get history is to... Take someone to lunch and just listen to them tell their story.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: That that's true. That's very true. That's part of my repertoire.
1: Yeah. Hey, that's why I'm inviting myself over for dinner.
0: Absolutely. We'll have it.
1: <laughs> All right. Let's jump into another question. And I I really like this one because it just jumps off of what we we're talking about with reading the news and. Some folks jump into a newspaper. Others are just scrolling through their feed all day on social with one news post after another. And person wrote in, every post angers me, but how do I know when it's time to drop everything and fight? And I think what they're asking is, hey, every day there's a different news story. Every day there's something else that feels like an injustice that's taking away our rights, that's taking away our freedom. At what point do you just throw everything out the window and jump in? And if I remember correctly, Junius, you have some thoughts about that. The
0: song says, you got to do when the spirit says do. You got to do when the spirit says do. And when the Spirit says do, you got to do, oh Lord, you got to do when the Spirit says do. So you see, it's out of your hands. It's when the Spirit says do, you got to do. And if you don't do, you'll regret it for the rest of your life. All of my friends who joined the movement had some specific moment when the Spirit became obvious. Spirit was telling them to do something if you're a Christian, then you might want to go back to Paul on the Damascus Road when God knocked him off the horse and he got up a changed man. Most of the Bible, the New Testament is written by this guy who used to be a tax man over there in the Middle East in one of those countries, and he became a Christian. Now, I'm saying that not to proselytize the religion but as an example of how people change consciousness changes people when you become conscious of who you are like those young ladies in in Colorado when you become conscious then you do things that you didn't do before you want to do things that you didn't do before i started when i saw emmett till's body on the front page of jet magazine i got mad then i saw miss tinsley getting dragged across the street in Richmond, Virginia, when she was part of a student protest. This lady was about in her 60s at the time. This was 1959, 1960, I believe. And I said, I want to do that. And then when the students start demonstrating from Virginia Union University, and I think she was part of that maybe, I wanted to go downtown to get the right to sit at the restaurant where we had been spending our money all the time to buy things, but we couldn't sit in the restaurant. But my mother said, no, you can't do it. So you see, my spirit at that point had to be suspended because my mother's spirit said, don't let them do that. So there's all kinds of ways you come to it. Eventually, I caught up to those students and I became a part of the movement and I was hooked. Been there ever since and will keep on doing
1: it. Do you believe you have to sacrifice everything to join the movement or are there... Ways to get involved and still keep a lot of your your regular life. What does that look like?
0: You have to sacrifice some things. When I I went to law school reluctantly because I wanted to go back down to uh, Alabama to work with SNCC, where I had been a part of the Montgomery movement there in 1965. Willie Ricks called it the Battle of Montgomery when I decided not to do that, and all of that you can pick up in my book, Unfinished Agenda, Urban Politics in the Era of Black Power, all of those details. But my parents wanted me to do something other than to be a civil rights organizer. Son, you got to do something. You just can't go out there and be in the streets all the time. So I went to law school. And when I practice law, eventually my law financed my politics. So I never raised, I never made a lot of money. What I did was to live comfortably so that I could still do what the spirit was telling me to do, which was to to figure out a way to resist injustice and to, to do the things that would empower people and, and empower myself in the process. So there's a way to do that. You just have to to just be willing to twist and turn. It's kind of like playing jazz. I'm a musician. you kind of like playing jazz. It's I'm improvisation. If you want an unimprovised life, if you just want to get a job, stay there, work nine to five, get that house in the suburbs, have two children, two cars, one wife. But if you want to have a life that is full of change, a life that is uh, full of creativity, then you will adapt the kind of lifestyle that I'm talking about. So you don't have to give up everything. You just have to embrace another style
1: of life. I think that the thing that I know about what does it look like not to give up everything, but to try to live your values and to try to work in a way that allows you to fight and build resistance and still be part of a movement to make choices for schools, for things that we buy. There are decisions that we can make that we have power over that doesn't require us to disrupt our entire lives. But I also agree sometimes when that, to your point, Junius, when that spirit comes and you are moved, it's time to put everything else aside and jump in. And you've had that moment.
0: And you want to do something that is successful, or at least uh, will bring success. You don't want to just keep toiling in the vineyard, doing the same thing, getting minimal results. And that's why I wanted to do this current segment, Called Where's the Money? Because people don't generally think about money for folks who are on our side of the ledger, the progressives. People say money, well, that's for the big shots, the 1%. And so when I think of the choices people have made pursuant to my philosophy or similar to my philosophy, doing what the Spirit says do, do, I think of Arturo Masul Deya, who up in the mountains of Puerto Rico, has used money, a little money well-placed, to help change the whole energy infrastructure of the island of Puerto Rico because they have learned how to harness the power of the sun. They do it on a neighborhood basis. They have 300 houses hooked up. They have defied the storms that come because when all the lights went out in Puerto Rico, theirs was still on because they had the battery power. They have a a radio station. They have a barbershop. They have a little community based upon ingenuity, ingenuity coming from the people themselves. Now, why is that important? Because we go to one stage and we protest. But how do we? change that into building communities? How do we learn the skills necessary? How do we bring in the capital that you need? All of these things are necessary. And he did it. They did it. Not him alone. But they did it. And it took a long time. But I think that's the kind of model that we want to have if we want to look at the creative use of money for progressive causes. So maybe we can listen to a little bit about what he said they had achieved or have achieved and how they did that. And that is in season 3, episode 4, January 18, 2023 called Powering the People. So take a look, take a listen, go back and listen to the whole thing, but uh here's Arturo talking about what they do
1: All right. We have our next question up, Junius. And this is a topic that feels like it keeps coming back. I know we talked about it last season. The question says, it doesn't seem like anything changes when we vote. What, in your experience, has convinced you that voting is important?
0: We had the 15th Amendment way back when, which said Black people had the right to vote uh, and people voted. But uh, then... For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. The racists came along and said, well, no, Black people can't vote. And we went into the post-Reconstruction era, and the vote was taken away. So we had to go back to getting the right to vote. That in and of itself was liberation. I was a part of that struggle. I'm glad that I was a part of that struggle. I learned A lot of what I know about organizing and confrontational politics because of the campaign to get people the right to vote in places like Alabama. And I keep telling people that's where I went to jail and I went to state prison. So all of that was part of my upbringing. So that to me is important. That was part of my lifespan, if you will. And a lot of us who did that and a lot of people appreciate it. So we voted. So now, We come to an age where we have uh, a lot of Black people who have been elected to office. We have had a lot of Democrats who are white and Black at the national level and the state level who have come into power and the right to vote. And again, the the counter movement to what's happening with our elected officials, we see a lot of people who have been put into office, who have not necessarily had the best interests of everybody in mind. So people say, well, let's not vote. And the folks on the other side take advantage of that. And then we have to do a heavy lift to get people back to the polls. And this did, in fact, occur in the 2022 election, where a lot of young people came out to vote and surprised a lot of people. And so the Democrats were able to do what they wanted to do. But again, that's it's a very narrow prescription of what the vote can and cannot do in most people's minds. But it is very clear at the local level that voting has helped us. We have a very vibrant mayor, a very progressive mayor, Raz Baraka, and he has come up with some really good ideas or implemented other people's ideas, such as And this was in our present set of episodes talking about the guaranteed income, guaranteed income. On a national level, Bernie Sanders has talked about that. But just on the local level, Baraka was able to implement that with the help of some friendly foundations and some governmental structure. And I believe maybe he did have some COVID money that went into that as well. So, maybe you have some thoughts on that as well.
1: Yeah. It's really easy to get lost that our votes don't matter when we're thinking about a presidential election. I can see that. The White House feels so distant. Everything that happens in Congress feels super distant. But I like to think about where I live, which is in Jersey City. So, right next door to you in Newark. And I believe our city collects over $300 million every year in property taxes. And somebody has to decide how that money gets spent. I look at our municipal elections that a thousand votes matter. A few hundred votes sometimes matter. Sometimes it's even only a handful of votes. And then that, that small amount of votes gets to decide the people who are making decisions over hundreds of millions of dollars and how they get directed towards our communities. I'm a mom of two. I've got a kid in public school. What dollars go towards schools and parks and city infrastructure and what safe equipment my kids have to play on every day? I sometimes think about, okay, well, I could go from the big view of this, of which vote actually impacts the choices I get to make over my body or the way that the country evolves. But a lot of the day-to-day choices that we're making are determined by who we're voting for. And I would say that impacts my day-to-day joy, the joy of our communities, the joy of our families.
0: Within the context of our podcast here, we had some of that joy exhibited in a young lady named Shamanique Jones, who is a beneficiary of the mayor's program on guaranteed income. If you get selected, and there was a criteria for who gets selected, you get to have some money to go on a vacation if you want. Maybe you couldn't do that. So for poor people, what you've been talking about is policy. So we demonstrated that in our current sequence on where's the money.
1: Shamanique's statement will always sit with me. This program saved my life. This policy, we can take it one step farther. This policy saved my life. Mm -hmm. Folks electing people like Raz Baraka saved my life. It doesn't feel that hard to get there to see why it's important to vote.
0: Right. The other thing that this mayor has done I should say, tried to do was to set up a review board, a police review board. That has been challenged by police organizations, I should say. And it it has been thrown back to the legislature to come up with a law which allows municipalities to do that. And it hasn't happened. But you see, this was important to us when we ran the first Black mayor in 1970. This was part of the Black and Puerto Rican Convention. This was a mandate that came from that Black and Puerto Rican Convention that there shall be a police review board, because even then, as now, police policies and practices were questionable. So Baraka was elected, and he's the first one who has tried to live up to that standard that was set what, 50-some-odd years ago? And for that, uh, we ought to want to come out and vote for more people like that.
1: I'm hoping if there's anything that we get out of doing this podcast or telling these stories, it's that not just folks will be inspired to vote, but that some folks will be inspired to run for office and become the next elected official in their community that's willing to make a change, and support a policy that feels counterintuitive or that feels like part of the resistance in a way that, hey, might not be comfortable, but will definitely have an impact.
0: And the other side of that is uh, we must learn to hold elected officials accountable, which we have not quite done right. i going to continue to say, put these people in and then There's nothing that holds them back. They keep on doing what they want to do. And I'm counting on people to do that.
1: Junius, I feel like that's an episode in itself. How do we hold our elected officials accountable and also support them? How do we ask for change and also thank them for the changes that they've made? Because Mm -hmm. the thing about being an elected official is consistently need to deliver for your community. Just because you delivered something 30 years ago doesn't mean you get to to hang out in power. So what's next? Next up. All right. This one's a little bit easier and probably more fun. And this is for Professor Williams. So if you can put on your professor hat. For those of you who don't know, Mr. Junius Williams was also a professor. Are you still a professor? What is the appropriate title?
0: Well, I was not a professor.
1: Not a professor.
0: Not a professor. I was not because by the rules of the game, even though I spent three years in law school, uh, at a very good law school, I might add, and I got the degree that conferred upon me, I do not have a PhD. So if you do not have a PhD, you can't become a professor. In most of these colleges and universities. Well, I said, what about the LLB? What about the JD that I have? What does that mean? Well, it just means you can go over to the law school. Well, I didn't want to go to the law school and teach law. I wanted to teach what I know and love best, which is community organization, community engagement. So I set up an organization called the Abbott Leadership Institute. And so for 16, 17 years, 18 years, I was on staff at Rutgers. And even though people call me professor, and uh, sometimes I turn around and acknowledge them, but most of the time I felt like I had to explain it because those are the rules of the game. Anyway, go ahead, ask your question.
1: Hold on, Which at graduation, what outfit do you get to wear? What color, what robe did you get to wear? Did you get to wear the robe of the professor or? You mean when I graduated from law school? No, when ended the student's graduation. Now this is just for my own benefit, but... Well, I never went
0: to those graduations. We had our own graduations at ALI. Every year we had graduations for people who had go through that program to learn how to become better parent organizers and parent uh, advocates. And then we had the Young People's Group, which was, which was uh, also, there were ceremonies for people who finished those courses. But uh, I wore what... Uh, Most people would wear. I wore a suit, sometimes with ties, sometimes without. Amazing. I like to set the rules.
1: (laughs) I like to set the rules should be the name of this episode. Okay. I agree with that. I like to set the rules. All right. So here's our next question, and it is relevant. I'm going to college, and I want to be part of the resistance I think in the question that they're asking, there's a little bit more here. They're involved in Black Lives Matter. They organize protests in their high school, and they're asking what they should major in in college because they they are going to go to college. They want to know, Mr. Williams, what they should major in. And I've got some thoughts here too, but let me hear yours first.
0: Uh, You can major in anything you want. I think what's uh, necessary is that you keep in mind why you're there. And if you're there to just get a job, well, I'm not even so sure college is that relevant anymore. But if you're there because of a cause, if you're there because you want to do something, bring something back to the community and use this politics that we're talking about to at least change your little world around you, then it doesn't matter what your subject matter is. It's it matters what your mindset is. I majored in political science, and a lot of people who go to law school majored in political science, but there were also people who majored in economics. There were people who majored in English. There were people who did all kinds of things to get that degree. The difference between me and a lot of people was that I didn't practice law to get rich. I practiced law for the lever that I had, the additional lever to help make change. So that's what the important thing is. Can you do that without going to college? Yes, you can. But what happens when you're in school, when you get that college degree, there's a line that's been drawn in the sand. People on the other side of that line, once you graduate, do have a better opportunity to make more money during their lifespan than those who do not. So there is an economics component to that, a personal economics component to that. So I think that's what you do. My parents wanted me to get a law degree so that I could stop community organizing and have a job somewhere. And they were right, because a lot of times, uh, not a lot of times, but sometimes you get dismissed from the political position Station that you thought you had, that you had earned, struggling and loyalty and all of that. And you got to have something to fall back on. So I've always had that. Uh, But in terms of where you go from here, I think what did we talk about today? We talked about correcting the imbalance of power using money. And that's very important. That's very important. That is more important than what do you do with your law degree. How are you going to use that law degree or that undergraduate degree to leverage some power that you didn't ordinarily, you wouldn't ordinarily have? We had my friends from SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, talk about how they did fundraising. And it was absolutely fantastic to hear some of the stories and some of the people who were involved that you wouldn't ordinarily think were involved. And they were involved because they loved. People and they wanted to see change. People like Harry Belafonte, mm-hmm. Sidney Poitier. Harry Belafonte, who just died recently, was responsible for at one point, he and Harry Bella, he and Sidney Portier took $50,000 in a paper bag down to the Mississippi project of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Now, how they did that, I don't know. People didn't have the details. But those are the kinds of stories that impressed me more than what you did with your college degree. If all you want to do is to become somebody who makes money.
1: Well, I think that brings up a really good point too. Is And I made this mistake too, is I thought to get into this space that you needed to major in political science. If you wanted to go to college, you needed to major in political science. And then with that, that's how you learned how to do this. And If I could major in anything right now, I'd learn accounting for exactly that reason that you just talked about with your friends at SNCC, how you bring in money, how are you able to disperse money, how are you able to fundraise, how are you making sure that you're able to do that legally and understanding what that looks like from a tax perspective, because hey... How do they get folks? They get them on taxes. If you want to go up against a municipal government or a state government and force change or pressure into change, then you've got to have your business lined up. The other thing that I would love to see folks go into is technology. And I'd love to see our movement build up a better understanding of AI. And what role that's going to play in how it impacts our communities, how it impacts our jobs, and being able to tell that story. And then I'm also reminded, Junius, of the conversation we had with your son, Che, and with Darnell Moore, who was at Netflix, about storytelling and being able to build stories that are representative of our families, of of our kids. and. Have that be part of the resistance.
4: I'm a media person and I'm a creative, a cultural producer, a writer, and I've done docs and stuff. So I've been in and out the corporate space within media for some over the last 10 years. But um, now I'm vice president of inclusion strategy for content and marketing publicity awards, studio operations, and animation at Netflix. And the reason why that was an important role for me is because as an organizer and as an artist who understood that my 11-year-old nephew in Camden is likely probably not following the hashtag intersectionality debate on Twitter, but is probably watching TV, is probably watching TikTok, is probably watching IG, right? Seeing any opportunity I have to help be part of a process to bring cultural production to our folk who have long been left out and our representations have been left. There's a lot of work to do to repair what Hollywood has harmed. And there's a lot of stories that tell And if my little black ass from Camden, growing up had some sense that black kids who are gay and working class and working poor could live and become something other than what somebody told them they can't. And if I saw that on TV, how much more would have done for me it's one of the reasons why I'm in my job because I want to make it possible. I want to give people access to the type of visions for themselves and the type of cultural production, whether that's film or TV, that can be possible for them. i end by saying that my nephew is 10 and he, there's a show that we have on Netflix called Raising Dion. You know, I won't say it. it's, he loves it, <laughs> but it's the story of a little black boy that has superpowers. And my nephew is enamored with this show. And I kept thinking, well, damn, I think when I was growing up in the 80s, I don't remember really seeing stories of like black kids with power at all. Right. And how much that one story as an optic might be do something for him as a young kid in terms of his own imagination. So my work is really about making more of that possible. And I'm happy to be doing it at this point in life.
0: But even more important than that, all of that's good. And I go back to what my friend uh, Freddie and Karen said to, from SNCC. What they had to do was to learn to improvise. And when one source of funding was available, they used that. And they had the technicians around them. So, yes, we need the technicians. But you also need the people on the front line who are imagining these devices that can help people. You can't have an organization without raising some money. So when one source of money dried up, they opened up to others. And toward the end of SNCC, the way they made money was on the back of Stokely Carmichael, later his name changed to Kwame Kuturi, who went on to college campuses and made speeches. So whenever he was paid, he put the money back in. Another aspect of our current set of episodes under the headline of Where's the Money is uh, what we did with food sovereignty. See, I think it's more important to think about what people do with skills, whether they go to college or not. Skills, that's the common denominator of all the things that we want to talk about here. We had uh, Tobias Fox from Newark and Pamela Gonzalez from the island of Vieques, which is a part of the big island of of Puerto Rico, talking about how they utilize those skills to help people get food. Everybody can't go to the supermarket and get everything that they need. So sometimes it's necessary to think about what is the alternative way of supplying people's needs. And uh, that's a skill. That's a skill set. And these two young people have put, uh, donated the time and the effort, put the time and effort in to figure out how to grow crops within a given situation. Urban farming, urban farming. That's what we're really talking about. The different skills in any kind of movement. We talked about in series two, we talked about community organizing and or community organizing is necessary. You're outside the government and you're trying to get the government to do the right thing, or you're trying to get the corporations to do the right thing. But there's one side of that, which is to take on the power and do that in the street with demonstrations and other means of nonviolence. But uh, at some point, when you get the opportunity, you have to learn and apply another set of skills to that. And that's a skill set that says Here's how you build community. So if you're stopping something, you need to know how to take on the power in the street, if you will, the politics of confrontation. But if you want to build a community, you have to have an additional set of skills of learning how to make things happen, how to grow food, how to produce solar energy, how do you save, how do you raise money to protect the right to vote, as the people did in STIC. Those are the kinds of things that you have to learn how to do additionally. So we've covered it all. And the most favorite of mine has been a combination of putting all of that together to build better communities.
1: It goes a long way to say that skills matter, especially that doesn't feel like it should be groundbreaking, but it, it is, especially as we're seeing our just collective investment in technical skills and spaces that help build people's technical skills, not receiving the same attention as how great we are at speaking to one another about our opinions. But I'm really encouraged by some of the things that we've heard, and you talked about food sovereignty, but even just the math and the science that goes into building those programs, and the folks that have to actually. Do the work day to day to make sure the the crops grow and are in the right environment. Those are skills that we take for granted that I do think it's important as part of this work that one of our our jobs and roles is to make sure that every position and every skill set is valued, that we're not diminishing anybody's skills, which sometimes we really screw up on especially in college.
0: And it goes to prove the point as we are coming to the end of this segment that everything indeed is political. Who would have thought that learning how to plow the fields and grow vegetables in an urban environment is political? Who would have thought that solar energy was so political? Those young people in Colorado who learned a lot about who they are by comparing who they were and coming up with a new set of answers for themselves. So that's what we did. And uh, I want to thank you, Francesca, for refreshing my memory about some of these things and hopefully getting people interested in going back through all three seasons as we have answered the, the charge. If everything's political, prove it. Well, I think we did, and I rest my case.
1: <laughs> you can have the last word, genius.
0: <laughs> I thought I might do that. I thought I might do that.
1: <laughs> Perfect. Done. We're done.
0: We're done. So
4: we're done.
0: when we're looking forward to next semester, when we're going to have some new information and new new topics for discussion, and we hope you all will. Go with us on that, too.
1: I hope we revisit this question about whether do women make the best organizers, because I feel like we have more facts to support that now.
0: I thought you might like that. We'll see. (laughs) Goodbye. Bye. (laughs) This is Junius Williams, your host on Everything's Political. Everything's Political podcast is sponsored by the Center for Education and Juvenile Justice, and supported by the Terrell Foundation and listeners like you. It is produced by Mosaic Strategies with theme music by Anthony Ant Jackson. Like what you hear? Subscribe to Everything's Political Podcast on Spotify and follow us on Facebook and Instagram for exclusive behind-the-scenes content.